Knives Out and Game of Thrones, America's Road Ahead, 1980 or 1984. Joe Biden had a smile on his face the morning after the midterms. That's the look of someone who just escaped total disaster, at least for now. The lesson they were all supposed to get with one decisive red wave never arrived. That's bad news for them. Or maybe it's bad news for all of us who are much more worried about America at the hands of the Democrats. For weeks, they parroted the mantra again and again, politicians and media pundits, not to mention the blue check army on Twitter, election deniers were coming for your democracy. We would never have fair elections again. President Obama heralded a new Gestapo who would kill people on the streets, jail journalists, and turn America into an authoritarian state. All I could think was, we're already halfway there, pal. It isn't the Republicans we have to fear. They're traditionalists. It's the Democrats who have amassed such an extraordinary amount of power by now that want to tear the country down to the studs and reimagine it as a woke utopia. Even election deniers sounds like a better plan than keeping them in office. Election denier was cleverly tied to the big lie to make Trump supporters seem like a Nazi army. They'd been making that case for six long years, but the fascism we were promised never arrived. Even January 6 was not evidence of fascism. It's useful, that's all, writes Barton Swaim. Quote, the term denier is an allusion to Holocaust denial. In the 1990s, activists and pundits exercised about global warming or what is now called climate change, began calling their adversaries deniers. Those deniers included many people who accepted the reality of global temperature change, but rejected the proposed remedies. Nonetheless, in an effort to delegitimize their views, their denialism was tacitly associated with a form of demented bigotry." End quote. January 6 gave them what they needed to keep dehumanizing and demonizing half the country, never let a crisis go to waste. But even that wouldn't have scared voters toward a historically failing president. They got their deus ex machina in the form of an attack on Paul Pelosi delivered days before the midterms. It was a sketchy story involving a mentally ill nudist hippie transformed miraculously into a January 6th monster. Now they had violence to attach to January 6th, election deniers, the big lie, and Trump. Vote for the side that won't hit you with a hammer, said Bill Maher. They reflected what the election would have looked like if everyone had voted on election day. But there isn't an election day anymore. There's an election season, at least for the Democrats. Gone were the problems with enthusiasm and turnout. They didn't even need candidates. They just needed to convince the hive mind to vote early, vote often, and vote blue. The Dobbs decision was enough to push out those early votes, handing the win to Fetterman long before Election Day, just like they handed the win to Biden in Pennsylvania long before Election Day. Those five rallies a day Trump was doing meant he could only inspire some voters. But how could he ever catch up, especially if he was encouraging his supporters to wait until November 3rd? They hid Fetterman like they hid Biden, all to bank those early votes. No doubt they had a lot of money to play with, operatives to drive around collecting ballots. We'll have to wait and see just how much of 2020 informed 2022 when it came to voting.
They have built for themselves a well-oiled machine, and if or until those laws change, the GOP will have to play along. Florida did better because they did vote early. They banked the votes. The red wave began and ended there. Now it isn't the Democrats who learn the hard lesson. It's the Republicans. Now they know. The Democrats have another advantage coming out of 2020, a compliant, obedient propaganda delivery device in the mainstream media. Fox News beats them in cable news ratings, but their narrative is everywhere. It's on the wire services and local outlets. They push the official story. It's so ubiquitous, it's like elevator music. You barely notice. And Tucker Carlson is one of the few who noticed their outsized share of voice since consolidating their power in 2020. John Fetterman became a U.S. senator last night. Does anyone think John Fetterman was a quality candidate? <laughs> is that why he won? Because they had quality candidates on the left? Did the voters of Pennsylvania really want a brain-damaged candidate who's never had a real job? Did they think he was more impressive than the guy who spent his career doing heart transplants? Probably not. you got to give them credit for at least knowing who they were voting for. And they voted for John Fetterman. He won anyway. What does that tell you? It tells you that in some cases, candidate quality is not actually the most important thing. What is? Well, the mechanics of an election. They matter. In fact, they matter sometimes more than any individual running in the election. The way people vote makes a big difference to the outcome. And so, by the way, there's access to channels of communication. Why does that matter? Well, because you can say whatever you want, but if no one hears you, you're not really speaking. And that's the case for Republicans. So often, as of tonight, Republicans can communicate their message unencumbered on a single cable television channel and a handful of relatively low-trafficked websites. That's it. The rest of the American media amounts to a gigantic filter designed to distort what Republicans are saying. It's a campaign apparatus, and only the Democrats have it. Now, you can whine about that. Ooh, the media are liberal. But it's not about liberal or conservative. It's about winning elections, and Democrats can win because they have that. So if Republicans want to win elections, too, they might spend some money to fix that, to achieve parity. So to restate, as of tonight, Democrats have far more control of the election machinery and almost total control of the American media, and Republicans don't. These are not ideological problems. It's not a question of who's right on the issues. That's settled, certainly in our mind, but probably in the minds of even people who would vote Republican if it occurred to them, but it doesn't because they don't know what they stand for. These are questions, again, not of who's right or who's wrong, but of who makes it into elected office, of who wields power. The midterms were also supposed to be a referendum on Biden, but now it looks like they were a referendum on Trump. But know this, had the election been on election day in Pennsylvania, Dr. Oz would have won it, just as Trump would have won it in 2020. Either way, though, Trump is implicated, which is why the Never Trumpers are probably celebrating now. The Lincoln Project is probably over the moon. Liz Cheney is clinking glasses somewhere with Hillary Clinton, maybe Rachel Maddow. Politics is a dirty game, and it isn't personal. But with Trump, it is, and it's easy to see why. He got screwed. There's no other way to look at it. He was destroyed by a government that didn't want him in power. When he protested, they went after everything he had. They raided Mar-a-Lago. They impeached him twice. They held a primetime show trial. None of that had any impact. But these losses mean time's probably up for Trump and the GOP. But the GOP can't win without MAGA. Going too hard on him might make them losers in the end anyway. They have to find a way to unite both factions of the party like the Democrats did. If they do, we might be headed for 1980. 
If they don't, it's 1984. If it's 1984, before Elon Musk bought Twitter, it was starting to feel like we were already living 1984. At least now there is someone at the head of a major tech platform who believes in the fundamental principles of free speech. But the Biden administration and the Democrats became Joseph McCarthy in 1954. It is fear-mongering, but it is also reaching the highest level of government. For podcast listeners, we're looking at a tweet from Matt Taibbi that says, Where's the alleged wrongdoing justifying this? It's bad enough that we have to investigate people without cause now. But having the president label people threats in public and people are okay with this? And the tweet from Greg Price is quoting a reporter asking Biden, do you think Elon Musk is a threat to national security? And Biden says, it's worthy of being looked at. It's only 1984 if the government involves itself by enforcing the ideology of the left, which it seems like they're inching toward. In 1984, citizens are afraid of one another, afraid of saying the wrong thing because every time they turn around, there is a children's spy ready to report on them. Twitter is nothing but the two minutes of hate. Unfortunately, the mainstream media feeds off and amplifies the mercurial hysteria that drives the site's content. And because the left generally defines itself as forever oppressed, they must always paint the side with far less power than they have as their biggest threat. Any ideological non-compliance is the end of the world for them. You're not allowed to have your own opinion because they define that opinion as harm. You have one choice, comply or else. We're looking at a tweet from the New York Post that says, exclusive SNL staff writers boycott over Dave Chappelle's hosting. That is, if you want to participate in the world the left has built for itself, the one that wants all bad dissenters to go away. Social media helped build a similar world to 1984 with an inside and an outside. In 2020, our government, working to remove the sitting president of the United States, felt emboldened to micromanage Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube to censor messaging that might hurt Joe Biden. But worse, the new economy has been moved entirely online. With banks and credit, shopping, employment, our entire history, our data is all available for corporate overlords to investigate if they want and ban the non-compliant. Who is allowed into the inside world will depend on ideological compliance at the hands of the left and the Democrats if they are allowed to remain in power. Just like in 1984, the working class majority exists outside. Orwell called them the proles. They were born, they grew up in the gutters, they went to work at 12, they passed through a brief blossoming period of beauty and sexual desire. They married at 20, they were middle-aged at 30, they died for the most part at 60. Heavy physical work, the care of home and children, petty quarrels with neighbors, films, football, beer, and above all, gambling filled up the horizon of their minds. To keep them in control was not difficult. A few agents of the thought police moved always among them, spreading false rumors and marking down and eliminating the few individuals who were judged capable of becoming dangerous. But no attempt was made to indoctrinate them with the ideology of the party. It was not desirable that the proles should have strong political feelings. All that was required of them was a primitive patriotism, which could be appealed to whenever it was necessary to make them accept longer working hours or shorter rations. And even when they became discontented, as they sometimes did, their discontent led nowhere, because being without general ideas they could only focus it on petty specific grievances. The larger evils invariably escaped their notice. 
The great majority of Proles did not even have telescreens in their homes. Even the civil police interfered with them very little. There was a vast amount of criminality in London, a whole world within a world of thieves, bandits, prostitutes, drug peddlers, and racketeers of every description. But since it all happened among the Proles themselves, it was of no importance. In all questions of morals they were allowed to follow their ancestral code. The sexual puritanism of the party was not imposed upon them. Promiscuity went unpunished. Divorce was permitted. For that matter, even religious worship would have been permitted if the proles had shown any sign of needing or wanting it. They were beneath suspicion. As the party slogan put it, proles and animals are free. Orwell's proles aren't just the white working class that Trump appealed to. They're also the forgotten working class the left pretends to care about. Crime doesn't exist in big cities at all. Now we're stuck with the ineffectual Kathy Hochul to ensure nothing is done about it. You must watch the video from the day George Floyd was killed to see people living outside the left's bubble in a community they supposedly care about. It was Memorial Day. We had all been trapped in our homes, missing birthdays, weddings, graduations, and funerals. We were standing six feet apart outside of grocery stores. We were wearing hazmat suits, but at Cup Foods on that faithful day, they were living their lives. Not a single one of them was wearing a mask. The summer of 2020 was only partly about the black community fighting for their rights and safety and protesting a traumatic death at the hands of police. They'd had enough, and that was understandable. But it was also the first time a major news event was dramatically reinterpreted to win an election for Democrats. While at first it seemed to me that it was just to win the election for Biden, that was bad enough. But it hasn't stopped. This is the new normal. The media has become a propaganda arm for the state. They were able to memory hole almost completely any news of the ongoing violence ravaging cities. And they did the same thing throughout 2021 as crimes and murders spiked. They did the same thing with Asian hate crimes perpetrated by non-whites. And every time there is a major shooting or act of violence, if the perp is not white, down the memory hole it goes. Even if the stories are covered on local news or occasionally on network news, they never become big enough to drive policy where the Democrats are concerned. Reporters were not allowed to cover what had happened in the wake of the riots and protests. You would be called a racist if you did. Not a single Democrat mentioned either the destruction, the violence against police officers, or the wrecked buildings during their national convention, and somehow that was okay with everyone. By contrast, Trump memorialized David Dorn, the slain police officer from the summer of protests at the Republican convention. It was a stark contrast of two realities in two Americas. When Michael Tracy wrote this piece of investigative journalism, it was shocking to see someone cut through the noise like that and be brave enough to tell this story. Big retailers have begun rebuilding. Smaller businesses are still fighting to obtain insurance money. Many are giving up and closing for good. Michael Tracy is the man who wrote that piece and took those pictures. He's a freelance journalist. He joins us now. Michael, thanks so much uh, for coming on. I'm struck by two things. One, how good this piece is and how arresting the images are. And two, that you, who don't work for a big news organization, did this story when almost nobody else did. You just drove from little city to little city and asked the people who live there, how are things going? Why isn't the Washington Post and the New York Times, why aren't they doing this? Well, that's true, Tucker. I mean, it wasn't rocket science. We were told that this was the biggest protest movement ever in U.S. history, or at least the New York Times very excitedly reported that. 
And in tandem with that protest movement were historic nationwide riots on the order of something we've never seen since at least the 60s and perhaps even going back further. So as somebody with a journalistic instinct, I wanted to see for myself how communities were dealing with the aftermath, what the attitudes toward what transpired were. And I just wasn't really getting that from the sort of mainstream organs that you would expect to be covering a story of such purported significance. And you're right, I mean, just traveling around, I can't tell you how many boarded up establishments I've seen. It's impossible to t keep a tally. And this is across the entire country. I've driven across the continental United States. And if you go to the New York Times, or you go to the Washington Post, or you go to any of these other outlets, it's not as though there's an easily accessible tally anywhere where you could, you know, find out what the precise quantification is of the amount of destruction that's been wrought in these purportedly historic events. If it's 1980, in 1976, America was moving in a conservative direction, but Nixon was forced to resign after the Watergate scandal. Had the Democrats found a more conservative leader to elect, they might have held on to power. Instead, they went with Jimmy Carter, who was much more of an echo of their past than a step forward into their future. The problem back then was not unlike the problems today. Inflation, an energy crisis, global instability, even a threat of nukes from Russia. Malaise was the word. But what Americans needed was someone to rescue them from despair. I know, of course, being president, that government actions and legislation can be very important. That's why I've worked hard to put my campaign promises into law. And I have to admit, with just mixed success. But after listening to the American people, I have been reminded again that all the legislation in the world can't fix what's wrong with America. So I want to speak to you first tonight about a subject even more serious than energy or inflation. I want to talk to you right now about a fundamental threat to American democracy. I do not mean our political and civil liberties. They will endure. And I do not refer to the outward strength of America, a nation that is at peace tonight everywhere in the world with unmatched economic power and military might. The threat is nearly invisible in ordinary ways. It is a crisis of confidence. It is a crisis that strikes at the very heart and soul and spirit of our national will. We can see this crisis in the growing doubt about the meaning of our own lives and in the loss of a unity of purpose for our nation. The erosion of our confidence in the future is threatening to destroy the social and the political fabric of America. The confidence As tempting as it is to keep torturing them with Trump, trust me, I know how much they have that coming. But to save this country will require someone who can offer the public a more steady path like Ronald Reagan did in 1980. At best, Trump can only serve one term before a brand new election cycle is upon us. At the very least, we need a leader who can serve two terms 
bring in a new coalition, and help pull the country out of the grips of madness. And that leader just gave the kind of speech that can take him all the way. You know, over these past four years, we've seen major challenges for the people of our state, for the citizens of the United States, and above all, for the cause of freedom. We saw freedom in our very way of life, and so many other jurisdictions in this country wither on the vine. Florida held the line. We chose facts over fear. We chose education over indoctrination. We chose law and order over rioting and disorder. Florida was a refuge of sanity when the world went mad. We stood as a citadel of freedom for people across this country and indeed across the world. We faced attacks. We took the hits, we weathered the storms, but we stood our ground. We did not back down. We had the conviction to guide us, and we had the courage to lead. We made promises. We made promises to the people of Florida, and we have delivered on those promises. Thanks for listening to my Substack, sashastone.substack.com. And I just want to thank all of you for being new readers, new subscribers. I really appreciate it. And um, I feel like we're building a community here and that, that makes me happy. Have a great weekend. And remember, to thine own self be true. <laughs>